As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. National studies are showing Latinos from a variety of backgrounds are among the most skeptical towards the COVID-19 vaccine, even though they are among the groups most likely to be hospitalized or die from the disease. I think the majority of Hispanics don't want to. They're afraid. They don't want to get it until others do, and they'd rather wait until the end. Unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation on social media. We have to find people who can engender trust to say, this is safe for you. The majority of COVID-19 vaccinations in Milwaukee County have gone to white people. But part of the battle for equity is convincing people to get the vaccine in the first place. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. We are recording this episode on Thursday, February 18th, and we are here with Fox 6 reporter Angelica Sanchez. Hi, Angie. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the podcast. It's, we're, we're glad to have you here. And before we dive into the story that just aired last night, we want to start by talking about what inspired this. Tell us a little bit about the background and, and how you got into doing this. Well, uh, COVID-19, the pandemic and vaccination, I think, just finds its way into every conversation you have with the people in your life. And uh, there was a conversation I was having with a relative of mine. Uh, she was telling me that she wanted to wait a year before getting the vaccine because she just wanted to see what would happen. And then just these conversations in my family uh, about, oh, I don't want to get the vaccine because there's a dose of coronavirus in the vaccine, like the flu shot. Um, and as I'm hearing these conversations, really based on you know things that they're either seeing on social media or just word of mouth, um, it really inspired me to, you know, do something about it. Obviously, we're so plugged in. We understand that that's not at all what the vaccine does. Um, I really wanted to use this platform to just send a clear message to the Latino community about, um, you know, we are we are the group most uh, impacted with other minorities uh, in the pandemic. Yet the thing that can cure, the thing that can save, literally save lives. Uh, we are the most skeptic about. And of course, I soon started to see the same studies, national studies that were reflecting what I was already seeing in my family. So that's really where the inspiration uh, for the story came from. And Angie, you mentioned that the Latino community was so has been so heavily impacted by this. I know in your story, you mentioned that Latinos are more likely to become hospitalized from the disease. So what are the, the contributing factors that have made this community so at risk? 
The chart that we used in our story came from the CDC, and they base their information off socioeconomic factors and environmental factors. Obviously, early on in the pandemic, uh, we started uh, noticing cases with the Latino community were more directed in the fact that they could not social distance uh, because they were a majority of essential workers. They could not just go home and work from a computer. Uh, so we were seeing uh, that. We were seeing that Latinos obviously are in multi-generational households, the majority of them. And, you know, it comes down to uh, paying the bills. And maybe if you start to feel sick, maybe you still go to work because there are bills to pay. Uh, so I think that that's really where the hospitalization uh, was going up. Again, the CDC cited uh, socioeconomic factors and environmental factors that were driving those numbers. Um, again, and I'm going back towards our reporting in the beginning of this, that those were some of the things that we were seeing were uh, tied hand in hand with those numbers. So I think that's really where the hospitalizations numbers were going up compared to other races and ethnicities. I know when the CDC uh, creates, they created something called the Social Vulnerability Index, basically a geographic-based system to sort of figure out where people are at, at greater risk. And and you look at the map of Wisconsin, and Milwaukee County is is top of that risk uh, uh, assessment, um, and in large part because of populations that live in heavily concentrated areas. And you mentioned the multi-generational. Obviously, that plays a role because if you have someone who's going to work and they have to go to work because they're essential, uh, they may be perfectly healthy and may not be at great risk of hospitalization, but if they're bringing that home to someone who lives in the same house and who is, in fact, older and at greater risk, then obviously you see the real problem there. So that that has borne out in the numbers. Right, right. And, you know, I've, I've seen that happen in my family. I mean, uh, my family has not been immune uh, to COVID-19. So I've seen uh, the things that we've, you know, reported on air happen in uh, people that are my relatives. Uh, so I think that, when it when it comes to Latinos and Hispanics, it's a very unique uh, uh, group. The, the the culture is there, and I think that in some parts, and again, I couldn't explore this uh, in my piece just because of timing and deadlines. Uh, but I think there is a a sense of you know toughing it out, you know, ignoring a cough maybe, or or just you know making sure that you know nothing gets in the way of you being able to go to work. Um, and I think that really calling attention to, uh, I know that there's been a huge campaign calling attention that if you feel sick, stay home. But for some people, we have to remember uh, staying home means no money, means you can't pay your bills. That's not an option for everybody. So again, that's why I really wanted to do a story just saying that uh, this is what can help you. The vaccine is what can cure you. This can save your life. You know, don't say, I'm not going to get it based off of information that's nonsense, really. Make that decision only after getting information that's based on science and that's coming from your doctors or a very credible source. So in your story, what information did you decide to focus in on and how did you decide that those were the important points? Because we can talk all day about vaccine information, right? So you really had to narrow it down. Uh, yes. So I talked with 16th Street Community Health Center and I asked them, what are the questions that you're getting the most um, and what are the questions that you think we should highlight? Because, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not answering these questions from patients. And one of the uh, big ones they wanted to address was the vaccine does not give you a dose of coronavirus. So we made sure to include that in the piece. The other one was don't skip your turn to get vaccinated. 
uh, because we are starting to see uh, the variations and mutations in this virus that we have been seeing are deadlier and more contagious. Uh, so really, those were the two big messages uh, that we wanted to hone in on. And again, uh, there's a lot of misinformation on social media. So make sure that you're getting uh, any any decision you make, your personal decision on whether or not you get the vaccine, make sure that that's only after you are getting credible information. Angie, you've just told us here in this podcast, you've reassured everyone listening that the vaccine does not contain a live dose of the coronavirus. You said it in your story last night, but of course we are speaking here in English and many of the people who need to get this message, they don't speak English. You took an extra step to try to get that message to them. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, as I explained, uh, but I think before we started the podcast that this was not the most difficult story in terms of content, but it really was in terms of language. Uh, for me, it was really important that this story was also available in Spanish. Um, it, it just it was it was something that was crucial to me that if somebody perhaps is stronger in their Spanish than they are in their English, that they that that message was able to reach them. Uh, I really want to thank our producer on this project, Sarah, who who, you know, understood that and just said, yep, I, I 100% agree. And uh, I think that the lesson for me is just, um, it, it is difficult. It is absolutely difficult to translate uh, what you say in English to Spanish because sometimes it's not an exact translation. Now, I'm bilingual. I speak Spanish. I can read in Spanish. Writing in Spanish was something that uh, I've never really dived into. So that was a huge challenge for me and obviously a huge responsibility to make sure that the information that you're giving out in English was also properly translated to Spanish. So I had a lot of help from uh, friends and from family looking over that script multiple times uh, to make sure that it was clear information. And I do want to add that it was... It was evident to me how important doing this in Spanish was when I, I reached out to the CDC. Now, I, I want to be careful how I say this. The CDC has done a wonderful job. They have great resources in Spanish, but again, not every single detail or everything that is available in English is available in Spanish. And I found that out when the chart that I referenced to in my reporting, I requested it in Spanish from the CDC and they said it was not available. Again, they, they have great resources in Spanish, but not every single thing is available in that language. So uh, I, was very, I was very happy that we were able to do it in that language. Um, and hopefully our audience will appreciate it and perhaps send it to grandma, to their, to their aunt, to their uncle, someone in their family that they know needs to see this in a language they can properly understand. Well, and I'd imagine it also adds to it for someone at home watching someone from their own community deliver this message, right? I hope so. I hope so. Again, my, my intentions were to make sure that language wasn't a barrier and a very clear message that the vaccine is safe. Don't skip your turn. Uh, this is a something that can help you, that can help bring some normalcy to your life. Don't make the decision not to get it. Uh, if it's not coming from credible information. Now, obviously, you, you're trying to defeat some of these rumors or things that are going around about, you know, some of the fallacies maybe about what's in the vaccine is part of the concern. But another part of the concern in terms of getting people vaccinated is just getting the doses to them and to the to the communities that need them. We've seen in the very first phase of vaccine distribution by design, 
Most of these doses went to healthcare workers and long-term care facility residents. And by and large, those populations, the people who work in healthcare, are white and in many cases female. So there was a real homogenous distribution early on. And now we're really hearing more about the push to get vaccines out to the broader community and particularly to some of these groups that are at risk. What, what, what are you seeing and hearing about the efforts when you talk to 16th Street, for instance, the efforts to get more doses there and get them out to the people who are willing to take the vaccine? Uh, well, you know, 16th Street, I believe they've just started their distribution. I want to say this week, um, they've just started for their uh, registered patients, 65 and older. Uh, but in, in my piece, I say how uh, the new uh, administration is uh, making is trying to make sure that this distribution is as equitable and accessible as possible. And one of the things I highlight in my piece is the importance of trust and, and uh, how people are, you know, those individuals that are uncertain over the vaccine, how important it is to reach them and all the national studies uh, that I saw, and one in particular that I highlighted in my story, you know, points of how important it's going to be once this vaccine is able to open up to more people, how important it's going to be to really hone in on these communities and make sure that you are building and bridging that trust to reach to reach them. Because even the national studies weren't able to pinpoint where the fear was coming from. They couldn't say clearly, this is coming from social media or this is coming from word of mouth. They could not pinpoint that clearly. So I think what we're seeing is, you know, we want to highlight the skepticism so that when uh, these health officials and, um, and city and county leaders are drawing up plans on how to distribute the vaccine further, they are aware uh, that there is an issue and that there is skepticism. So how do they uh, build campaigns and build distribution plans to reach those individuals that are skeptical over the vaccine? And you saw that skepticism firsthand when you went to go speak with people in Milwaukee County's Latino community. Yeah, uh, I did. I did. And one of the individuals that we highlight in the piece, you know, he's very honest and and he gives a response that, you know, I've I've heard, which is that a lot of people want to wait until the end. They want to first see what happens and want to wait until the end. And of course, a decision like that could cost someone their lives because uh, the variants that we are seeing, some of them are more deadly and more contagious. Uh, so uh, one thing that I really appreciate it is that this individual also told us that the reason why he's getting it, he said, if it wasn't safe, why would they give it to uh, our most essential workers, which are police, firemen, doctors, nurses? Why would they give it to them um, if it wasn't something that was safe? So that, that was a very interesting conversation with that individual. Well, we know that there's still a shortage of vaccines right now, so there hasn't been a real issue with, you know, forcing people or really strong arming people to get vaccines they don't want. But at some point that will shift. We'll have more vaccine than we have uh, people willing to get it. And it's important at a certain point to encourage people. And I think uh, in, with a story like yours, for people to hear from someone in their own community, that gentleman you interviewed, people who talk about these things, they're hearing from people they may trust and, and these messages could get through. You can't force someone to get the vaccine, but if you can encourage them, if you can allay their fears or their concerns, you may well increase the likelihood they're going to get something that could save a lot of lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important uh, that, you know, I, th I thought it was important for us to, you know, for Fox 6 to highlight this issue. 
um, which is very simple. And that is that the community that could be impact that's been impacted the most is the one that's most skeptical. And I want, and I hope that our city leaders, county leaders heard that message. And again, when it comes time to drop these plans on how to distribute this vaccine further, once more doses are available, that they're also keeping in mind, how do we reach uh, this community. So uh, I do hope that, you know, and again, the fact that it was available in Spanish online, I do hope that an individual that perhaps was uh, skeptical or uh, uncertain, I hope that this changes their mind or at least forces them to maybe take a second look at their decision. Obviously, we never have time to fit everything we want into one story. That's the way TV news works. So was there anything that you you wish you had gotten to, but you just you couldn't or anything you're looking toward as a follow up or, or for a next story in this lane? Yes, absolutely. Um, I do want to talk to, so 16th Street, like I said, I believe they started their vaccinations uh, this week. Um, I do want to talk to those that are getting the vaccine and, you know, were you skeptical at first? And if you were, what changed your mind? Uh, so I do hope that I can do a follow-up on just the individuals in the Latino community that are uh, being proactive to get the vaccine. Uh, and then something else, you know, and I know that we discussed this was um, why now in the CDC chart, you know, I, I that, that I pointed out in my story, um, the chart uh, obviously updated and thankfully showed improvements in hospitalization rates and death rates for the Latino community. I do want to dive in further into what caused that shift. Was it because, you know, cases declined or, or really where did that uh, shift come from? All right. Well, thank you so much, Angie, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, but hang on, Angie, and stick around for a few more minutes. Because this is the part of the podcast where we go off the record. We get a little more personal, have a little fun by answering a question we have not prepared for. And to ask us this surprise question, we are joined again by Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hello, everybody. Today, I am bringing you a question that is about a hotly contested issue. Uh, or maybe I should say a coldly contested issue. What is the perfect temperature in your house in winter? What is your thermostat set at? I, I do appreciate the clarification in winter because the the ther- what feels like the perfect temperature in winter is is not the perfect temperature in summer, even though theoretically it's the same temperature. Um, this is an argument my husband and I have all the time because I'm... You're nodding. Sarah's nodding her head like she knew. Oh, yeah. this is... I know, I know what this is going to oh, be. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, pre-pregnancy, I was always cranking the heat up. I'm always cold. And he's always turning it back down. I mean, if it were up to him, we would have the thermostat set at, like, 60 degrees at the highest. Like, he is he can survive in the cold temperatures and he's kind of like suck it up that's uh changed a little bit uh, now that we have a toddler so he he realizes that she is not in the position to suck it up oh he just, i'm laughing because as you're telling this you're turning your head i'm and turning my head because my have. husband just he just brought me he just brought me stuff from starbucks and that's right i'm talking about you hon <laughs> He goes, so you're bad-mouthing me, and I bring you a gift. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) 
just, just go in and bu- bump <laughs> um, it down a degree. Bump but it down now, a degree. now that I'm pregnant and warm all the time, we're like much more on the same page. So I would say it's it's usually set around 68. Sometimes it'll go up or down a temperature, but 68 has been kind of the the consistent one lately, and there have been far fewer arguments over the uh, the temperature in our house. It also helps when he brings me Starbucks. Okay, nobody make me feel bad. <laughs> 73. What? That is warm. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. Well, are you have you taken out a mortgage to pay the, the bills this year? <laughs> what is Fox 6 paying you? Uh, so 73, my fiance likes it at 69. So, yes, that debate is alive and well in our household. <laughs> Sarah looks like she's sweating just listening to this. (laughs) Well, now it's funny because so I grew up in a house where my mom was always like she wanted 73, 72 was like that's getting cold. 70. She wanted she wanted the house to feel as though you're already under a blanket before you've put on a blanket. And so I grew up that way, (laughs) thinking that was normal. And then, you know, I get out into the world and and I start paying bills and I'm like, well, that's too much. But also, I I always felt it was I always felt it was a little stuffy in the house. Now. As as many people know who listen to the podcast, maybe you don't, but I, I am uh, married for a second time now. So in the past, I've, I've had the experience of people who had different viewpoints on this uh, in the household. And and when I was married for the first time, and, and I'm not here to disparage anyone, but my ex-wife liked it. She liked to be economical. And we and I, you guys are going to – you thought 73 was shocking. We kept the house, and I'm not exaggerating, 61. Oh, my gosh. 61. <laughs> And the idea behind it, as it was explained to me at the time, was you can put on blankets, put on a sweatshirt, put on socks. You don't need to walk around in shorts and a T-shirt. You'll be fine. And and I so but but then I became sort of adapted to the idea that the house is cold. So you bundle up. And and now I'm now I'm into more of a happy medium where we tend to keep the house at around 70 um, you know, it's a bigger house because we have four kids and, and, and enough bedrooms that it costs more to heat. So I wouldn't mind going down a couple, but um, but I'm not going up to 72 or 73 because, again, they don't pay me enough at Fox 6 to do that. So they pay me just fine. There's not a complaint. I don't want the boss to hear that. I, I, I'm paid. You're going to get an email after this, Brian. Right. I'm paid more than adequately, uh, bosses. But uh, but I'm just saying that uh, I'm not willing to spend the money on that large of, of an electric and heat bill. That's uh, our house is is kind of the same. We I am a hot box. My son is a hot box. So like if we had it our way, we'd probably put it down to about 66. Um, My husband and my daughter are always it's cold in here. It's so cold in here. Is there a draft? It's cold. Um, Which I love them both. But so we keep it at about between 68 and 70. Um, But I before kids, I kept, you know, we kept it down pretty, you know, 66, 67. But then as soon as you have kids, you're like, oh, my gosh, are their fingers going to freeze off? Because they're so little and they can't, you know, whatever, regulate their heat and body temperature as well. But anyway, so for fear of my children's uh, appendages, I (laughs) cranked it up a little bit. So, yeah, but if I had it my way, I usually turn it down once everyone leaves the house for school and work. So. 
See, I have, I have to say this because I know that my mom is listening because she listens to all of these. She's one of the best fans of the podcast. She is. So she's going to be listening to this wishing she could jump on and probably defend herself or say something because maybe 73s weren't. I, I know that her mother, my grandmother, actually preferred it probably warmer than anyone. And for a time before my grandmother passed, they lived together. So my guess is my mom was even like, okay, this is ridiculous. It's too stuffy in here. But, um, but, but I just recall having the house. I, I always thought of 72. Well, that's room temperature, right? So that's what you keep it at. And and that's how I grew up and then and swung the complete other direction to to 61 or 62, which is outrageously cold. Um, and 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 I like it. I think somewhere in between is reasonable. So what do we come down at here? We what, what are we all saying is the sort of well, I know, Angie, you're 73. <laughs> <laughs> Angie, <laughs> it, yeah. Fans of well, the podcast, don't leave me alone. Anybody else like it at 73, please email <laughs> my mom. That's about it. All right. She that's one. <laughs> no, I feel like I feel like I feel like like maybe if, if you're if you're kind of averaging what we all like it at maybe like 70. Somewhere, I think 68 to 70 is probably typical. Maybe 68 is a little low. Maybe 69, 70 is typical. Some 71. The the 61 and 73s are probably more. You think there's anybody out there who's keeping it like 76 or 80? Yeah, if they're doing hot yoga at home. Well, I was, maybe if you're from, you know, I don't know, the southern tip of Texas and you're used to the summer humidity or something. I don't know. Maybe. But the best part of Wisconsin is that you don't have to deal with the summer that's a humidity. Good, that's, a, that's a very good point. That the summers are glorious. Yes. These winters are brutal, but we'll get through it. All right. Well, if you have a question as insightful as that one, or maybe even more insightful, that you want to submit for our off-the-record segment, if you want to suggest a topic we should discuss, an issue we should investigate, please send us an email. If you want to back Angie up and say 73 degrees is where it's at, Send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, including producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and of course, executive producer Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. No, really, I don't just say that at the end. Like, we really want you to subscribe. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson for Amanda St. Hilaire. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.